Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Save the Planet. Why, Why not? Why, Why not? not? Why not? We're back for another week, and this week we're going to be talking about the topic of money. Um, so just to be um, to be clear, we're not going to delve into um, the failings of our current economic model per uh, se. Per se. <laughs> we're going to be touching on it, but that's, inevitably there will be a tangent into that. But of course, that's not the point. But I, th- I think that's worthy of another episode of its own because it's such a crucial topic um, to discuss, and uh, it's so important to start thinking beyond um, our current capitalist economic model. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Today, our main question, our leading question is, who pays for the planetary scale task of decarbonizing the economy? So where can we find the money? Because often our politicians make excuses that, you know, we're, um, governments are broke. They can't afford to invest the, the huge amounts of funds needed for this mass scale um, societal Uh, transformation but in fact we're going to show today that this isn't the case there's always money to be found Uh, and this is in fact proven by the fact that um, governments are capable of scraping together billion billion dollar corporate bailouts as we as we see in um, events such as the uh, 2008 financial crisis or or even during the current corona crisis so the money is available it's just a case of our political class finding the willpower to track down that money where they're uncomfortable to to go um, and um, claim it and use it. Um, so we're going to be asking who should be expected to pay for this transition, who shouldn't be expected to bear the, the major brunt of the costs. And then in the second half of our episode, we're going to be talking about what types of investments are actually problematic and self-defeating. Mm. Um particularly with regards to climate philanthropy and green billionaires. Yes. But before we go into this topic in more depth, um, let's have some wine. Let's have some wine. Let's have some wine. Today we've got a lovely red. Very fancy, I would say. Very fancy. I mean, let's be honest here to all of our listeners. Timo splashed some cash today for a nice vino. That's that's putting it lightly. I I went for (laughs) the upper range of wine uh i i spent the entirety of eight pounds on this wine which by university standards is incredibly expensive uh, i'm gonna be uh, <laughs> living on on just bread for the next week because uh no but um so i mean obviously it was deliberate to choose a wine that was slightly more expensive yes. because the whole topic we're going to be talking about today is money. that is money of course and um the fact that we chose such a an eloquent uh, such a a rich and opulent seeming wine i mean you should see this um, the crest on it, it, it there, there's a crest on the front of this wine in brilliant gold dark maroon with a lion and a crown it is it's very yeah, regal it's extremely regal very well put and the font is regal as well and it's called a lussac saint emilion so um and it's from the bordeaux region vintage um, is a blend of merlot cabernet and Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's mm-hmm. been carefully selected by the winemaker for its concentration of black fruit flavors and supple tannins. Interesting. So let's have a sip. Let's see what we think of this. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's pretty oh, good. Yeah, that's pretty that good. is pretty <laughs> tasty. Yeah, worth, 
ladies and gentlemen, it's worth spending a couple pounds more um, for the benefit of not grimacing every time you take a sip. Wow, that is actually some good stuff. It is, I mean, as the bottle says, it's rich and full-bodied. This wine makes the perfect accompaniment to roast beef, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hearty stews, not sure about full that. flavored cheeses. Right. So you it's know. rich in flavor as well as expensive in, in price. It's meant to be paired with some very luxurious commodities, some very luxurious food items mm -hmm. that not, not everyday people can afford. Exactly. So it's quite exclusive in, in the type, in the sort of sectors of society yes. that can afford it. Well, what kind of notes are you getting here? Just go in for another sip. So, kind of red red berries. Um, yeah, I definitely get that red, full-bodied, powerful flavor. But it's also well balanced, and it and it doesn't. Uh, it's not a punch. It's more no. of a. It's it's kind of like a subtle hit. Yeah. It doesn't overwhelm the palate, but there's something there. It's not too mellow, but it's, it's dynamic. Not, it's dynamic. It's a dynamic mm. wine. Very good. I think we've uh, covered all bases on this wine <laughs> this week. <laughs> delicious so going into today's topic <laughs> um i mean maybe it's worth starting with this concept that naomi klein talks about at great length which is the pretty simple precept um of the polluter having to pay mm. so maybe you want to ex um, go into this idea of the polluter pays what does it entail Yes, well, we have known basically since the 70s and 80s that the fossil fuel industry has been aware of the dangers of emitting carbon. So they've known, they've denied, they've delayed policy just to continue their profit model. Mm -hmm. So they, of course, have a historic social, political, economic responsibility to somehow transition us away from fossil fuels because they have emitted so much and have gotten us to this point. So these big polluters need to cough up a lot of capital, a lot of money to make sure that we decarbonize completely and move towards a more sustainable society. I think that's kind of the brunt of the issue is that for those people who have omitted so much and who have known for so long that this is an issue, mm -hmm. they now need to face that ecological debt. Right. Um, there are, of course, varying policy prescriptions. Some politicians want to prosecute the fossil fuel industry basically nationalize them and use them as a force for good others want to work with the fossil fuel industry to be honest i think the most viable is just to enact top-down legislation hmm. that basically says a you're not allowed to drill for any more oil and b you need to finance you know not completely because even their money will not cover a, a total transition right. to a sustainable society but they need to largely finance this transition towards a greener world so that that is kind of the the polluter pays principle. Yeah, and uh, I, th I think it's it's worth noting how far away from this solution we are. I mean, at this current stage, we're still um, governments are still cashing out massive subsidies mm. for these fossil fuel companies, um, and it's actually rather interesting that in our um, research for this episode, um, we came up with very different stats about the uh, the actual. Um, the actual amounts of money that governments have um, have gotten, uh, given in terms of subsidies to these companies. So my source um, from 2014 mm. by Naomi Klein yeah. um, claimed that it was between 750 billion and one trillion dollars, yeah. and, and yours from 2017. Yeah. So a report from the International Monetary 
fund found that governments around the world are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry by 5.2 trillion dollars which is around six percent of global gdp i mean it's hard to wrap your head around such a gigantic number you know a gigantic amount of value of money being used to continuously extract fossil fuels which is undermining the viability of our existence on this planet i mean you're basically financing your own demise yeah i mean both of those (laughs) both of those um sums are just exorbitant but i think it's i mean i'm while we were discussing this we thought like what what is the cause behind this discrepancy between these two um pretty well respected um sources uh, sources. so what we thought is that maybe the um way of collecting uh, data has become more efficient or has changed over the last few yeah. years um i mean that still doesn't account for a uh, almost a four trillion uh, we, dollar gap we don't <laughs> we don't want to say necessarily no. that subsidies have increased by, 4 by that trillion. much because because we don't think that would be accurate but even if they have increased by a certain amount even yeah. by a smaller margin or yeah. even if they have they've failed to decrease um that's extremely problematic the, f- the fact that it's even in the territory of billions or trillions is beyond it's ridiculous the pale. it's I mean, ridiculous because once, obviously yeah I, I was just gonna say that yeah. if, if the first step towards getting the polluter to pay yeah is to stop paying the polluter. Yeah. <laughs> stop paying the polluter i mean it's, it's, it's quite simple you, absurd you it's absurd um the fact that we are still giving the fossil fuel industry money in 2021 when we're seeing the incipient phases of a full-fledged climate emergency, it's beyond me. It shows the absurdity of electoral politics and how our politics are still so corrupted by money. I mean, right. it's crazy. And because I think that quite a lot of our listeners uh, are probably in their right to wonder why governments keep dishing well, out this well, much money. You have to ask the question: What is the point of government? If right. you think about the social contract, which is an idea that we surrender a certain amount of our liberties for a leader for a sovereign in the exchange of security mm-hmm. what are they actually doing they've completely demolished the social contract and that's something that extinction rebellion for example continuously says is that the social contract is completely void what are we doing by voting for these politicians if they just will dish out money to the fossil fuel industry i mean i don't want to get too far off track here but i think it's really important that we acknowledge that we are so far away from really the solution like you said when you stop paying the polluter absolutely the needs to start paying Absolutely. And of course, there are a range of different ways we should go about doing that, but it just highlights the urgency and, like yeah. I said a couple of times, the absurdity of the scenario we're in. And of course, I think it's it's um, when we think about solutions to this. I think um, the fossil fuel companies have proved that they won't do this of their own hmm. accord, because the most they've done is to to show kind of token um, interest in developing. Um, like lower less carbon intensive or more um, renewable well, energy solutions yeah i mean that just as a token they've invested so little of their actual profits into into these solutions um that i think it's time for for the law to step in and <laughs> yeah I, I think they have to be legally obliged to pay yeah well a very good example of that is shell so shell has you know so-called committed to net zero by 2050 yet according to their outlook of future energy projections they're going to continue drilling for oil and gas up to 2050 
and beyond at accelerated rates. Mm-hmm. And basically they're saying, well, we're going to suck out all this carbon through technology, like we mentioned in the previous episode, like direct air capture or you know types, different types of geoengineering yeah. that are still completely commercially unviable and in the infancy of technological development. Mm-hmm. So they're basically foisting the whole thrust of their argument on technologies that don't even exist. Right. It's, it's crazy. And it's honestly criminal that they are even allowed to put out a projection that says we're going to continuously we're going to continue to extract fossil fuels in the year 2050 when the world should be net zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, according to the most respected scientific authority, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Right. And, and that's just a, a method of, of continuing to justify the business as usual model yeah. until some sort of miracle solution comes along. Um, I, I mean, I think it's important, though, that it extends past the fossil fuel industry they are certainly the bogeyman like they are the main driver of this crisis and they are certainly embedded by the politicians who are taking their money and are not legislating for our own future and for the for a habitable planet however it's also wealthy people in general yeah i mean there's a statistic that says the top 10 percent of the wealthiest people in the world are responsible for 50 percent of carbon emissions so there's this whole legacy of domination that started with colonialism, continues today with modern neoliberal capitalism, where inequality is inherently tied up with a bifurcation in the amount of carbon that goes into the atmosphere. There are billions of people who basically have no carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. And one wealthy person you know, has you know, triple or quadruple that amount of somebody living in the global south. Like, it's just this... In, you know very stark disparity right and i think yeah this disparity um yeah it's just highlights the fact that there is this direct correlation between wealth and emissions as you were saying um and a, a stat that backs that up is the fact that 500 million of the richest on the planet are responsible for half of the global emissions mm. well, so i mean there's there's even more striking uh stats yeah, than that I, when we come down to, to billionaires and to individuals yeah. I just would like to share another statistic that yeah. falls onto that in which I alluded to, but a person in the richest 1% of the world's population uses 175 times more carbon than someone from the bottom 10%. You know, I just mentioned triple or quadruple. No, it's 175 times greater. So that, I mean, the disparity is just mind blowing. And with that disparity comes a greater responsibility for, for these individuals and nations with greater carbon footprints yes. to pay more. It's, it's quite straightforward. I mean, it makes logical sense. Yes. And, and I also think back to the seminar we had with, or that we attended with Elizabeth Colbert and David Wallace-Wells, where they said, if you think about all of the money, all of the capital, all of the resource, resources that went into building this carbon-based infrastructure, mm-hmm. this carbon-based society, we need to do the equivalent in terms of financial commitment to completely decarbonizing our way of life which is just just a a mammoth task it's just huge if you think about hundreds of years since the industrial revolution which has paved the way for this Hmm. carbon disposition (laughs) if you will um it is a it is a gargantuan task and it's going to require lots of money and what i will say though is that it it so bothers me when people say oh how are you going to pay for that Hmm. It almost question. It almost makes you question the validity of money and the way our society is structured around, like the exchange of money. Like, right. how is that even a question? 
how am I going to pay for that? How am I yeah. going to pay for having a plant that is suitable for life? Yeah. Like, it's crazy how much, I mean, this is kind of a pun, but how much currency money has in, <laughs> in just, like, everyday life. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you cannot imagine life beyond just cash. Yeah, I think the fact that life. that question's even asked yeah. suggests that it's not really a question of, of whether it's possible. It's a question of whether it's, um, whether there's the willpower there. The to, political to, will. The political will to implement it. Um, I mean, for example, the war on terror cost $10 trillion, exactly. $10 trillion. And that was for nothing. I mean, yeah. not only was it a failure, but it also ruined countless lives. Mm -hmm. So when people say for the, for our listeners out there, how are you going to pay for this? You say, well, we need to muster the political societal and cultural will to follow through with this Yeah, because it is the most pressing threat humans have ever faced. Yeah. And it is almost beyond money that we just need to do this. We need to marshal all of the resources that we have right now and commit to a decarbon future. Yeah. Decarbonized future. That's a beautifully phrased sentiment. And and just to back that up, I'd like to read out a few bullet points in Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, where she lays out some of the sectors from which money can be mm. um, extracted or, or reclaimed, some of the, the biggest polluters. Um, and in fact, she demonstrates that the money is available if certain taxes were put into place. So I'll just read this out mm. and then we can perhaps discuss some of these examples sure. that she talks about. So first of all, a low rate financial transaction tax, which would hit, which would hit trades of stocks, derivatives and other financial instruments could bring in nearly 650 billion at the global level each year. Um, next closing tax havens would yield another windfall so the uk-based tax justice network estimates that in 2010 the private financial wealth of individuals stowed unreported in tax havens around the globe was somewhere between 21 trillion and 32 trillion so these are huge but huge that's amounts basically half of global GDP. and if that money were brought yeah. into the light and its earnings taxed at a 30 percent rate it would yield at least 190 billion in income tax revenue each year mm. um a, f a further point she um, suggests is a 1% billionaire's tax, mm. uh, which was actually an idea that was floated by the UN, and this could raise 46 billion annually. Mm. Um, the next one is quite interesting, um, and again demonstrates like where priorities lie and where money is um, fed into, mm -hmm. um, and how money ought to be redirected. So she demonstrates that slashing the military budgets of each of the top 10 military spenders by 25% could free up another 325 billion. I mean, I mean, extraordinary numbers. Just by 25%. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty remarkable. Um, how much money is still fed into the uh, military spending. I mean, yeah, that's a very good example. In the US, the military budget is around 780 billion dollars and yeah. you have to ask the question who are you actually protecting us against right i mean not to mention that the u.s military is the largest institutional emitter of greenhouse gases and it's like there the sheer absurdity of giving this organization money to protect us against i mean a lot of the time foes that do not have the do not pose a danger that our yeah. politicians tell us they do. Not to mention that it's it's not just a case of protection. It's often a case of intervention in in what the U.S. deems to be unstable yeah. states. 
Yeah. So perhaps if there was a, if there was less military investment, and then there'd also be less political will to interfere in yeah. overseas <laughs> issues. I, I, and I, I think that's sort of still a persistent issue. I mean, um, I remember that we were watching um, during the uh, election mm -hmm. uh, results speech by um, uh, Joe Biden. He um, signed off by saying, God bless the troops. And we just looked at each other Ridiculous. and were like, that's a very odd way to, to end his speech. God bless the troops. Like, what what era do we live in? I mean, that's this classic American patriotism, you know, hyper patriotism. Of course, but it's still interesting that, that that's what comes to his yeah. mind, that the, the military plays such a big part in, in this idea of, of the American nation yeah. and of kind of pride in, in the strength of yeah. American influence. What, what I will say is, you know, we're hearing a lot of calls for defunding the police. Yes to that. And let's defund the military. I mean, I, I know that might sound provocative, but why are we funding the military with billions of dollars when that could be used to decarbonize our society and actually tackle the most urgent threat yeah. of all time? I mean, in, in terms of human experience. But I mean, that's especially applicable to the U.S. considering that, you know, their military budget is, you know, double that of the next seven Mm. seven military yeah, and I mean, I mean, that's not the exact statistic but it is like far and above all the others and i think it's kind of uh interesting that you raise that because it's that would be a really difficult bill to push through especially given that there's projected to be so much more conflict because of the very consequences of climate change yeah. in the coming decades that uh i think it's quite unlikely that governments will will see the need to um, to yeah. defund their military they'll, they'll actually believe i mean yeah they'll have to actually think that like national security yeah. will be a, a much higher priority very twisted logic but i think that's a good point yeah. is with increased climate impacts there will be large-scale destabilization and potential security risk which only f feeds this vicious cycle of more military buildup and potentially armed conflict but i want to bring it back before we go into a short music interlude about this idea about taxes i think it's a very vital you know instrument that democracy needs to pursue taxes are by no means a very sexy topic to discuss it is you know just kind of dry but essentially what's happening is that billionaires and millionaires and wealthy corporations are not paying their taxes mm -hmm. they've found these very clever loopholes where they basically skirt past the debt collector and they store their immense profits i mean mm. for example amazon made like 24 billion dollars in profit on which they paid zero dollars in taxes in like the last two years there's they store that in something called an offshore tax haven which is basically a country that has a zero percent corporate tax rate a classic example is bermuda so what happens is that these companies will have a subsidiary or some type of corporate branch stationed in one of these corporate tax havens and they will shift all of the profits there so they do not have to pay any taxes. And there is a enduring idea that if we continuously slash corporate tax rates, it will incentivize it will incentivize corporations to move there and provide jobs for citizens. However, this race to the bottom is incredibly corrosive because it continues to strap governments for cash. I mean, it's crazy. And I mean, you can get into this even deeper is that a lot of the innovations that corporations have come up with a very good example being the iPhone, you know, which is like hailed as mm -hmm. this, I mean, the classic 
free market commodity. <laughs> a lot of the initial funding for the parts that actually composed the iPhone came from government, which means taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to try to build this connection is that citizens are paying for the building blocks of these commodities. Corporations make billions of dollars of profit instead of paying taxes, which in the end would hypothetically give a return on investment from that initial investment of taxpayer money. They instead put it in tax havens and deprive the government and citizens of money. And taken one step further, of course, depriving governments of money means that decarbonization continues to be on the wayside. So that is very interconnected, but taxes, I mean, that's a serious issue. If you, people want to be more educated on that, read um, the book, the recent book by Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zucman, who are two leading French economists on this issue because they've developed a range of, you know, prognoses. Mm-hmm. To handle What's this. the book for? Um, I need to double check, but it's, I think it's tax justice now, hmm. but let me just check that. So our hmm. listeners have, an accurate representation yeah and uh thanks for that Noah. and i think when we talk about tax it it brings up the idea of who ought to pay bigger taxes and who ought to not be um stuck with the biggest burdens Mm. of paying for um this transition to a, a sustainable um society with sustainable infrastructure because that's quite a thorny issue uh because obviously we don't want um a steeper carbon tax, for example, to um, to disproportionately impact the poor and middle class consumers, yes. uh, because that will just um, intr- further entrench existing inequalities, social inequalities. Yes. So I think we'll come to that after our music break, because yes. we've got a few and, examples to discuss on that topic. And, and just before that, quickly, the book is called The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. I read it this summer, or this past summer, very well written and incredibly insightful we're now going to go to a short music break and we'll be right back and stay tuned 21 savage for that beautiful song as he says he's got one two three four five six seven eight m's in his bank account and so do billionaires and they need to pay for decarbonization thanks for thanks for drawing (laughs) that link between our topic and and that uh, questionable song choice. Um, and yeah, moving back to this idea that I introduced before the musical interlude, um, is this idea that not everyone has to shoulder as much blame. The idea that the polluter pays also has a flip side, which is that people who are less responsible for the climate crisis um, shouldn't be forced um, to bear the brunt of its costs. Yes. Um, so I think... A really good case study for this is the the very recent Gilets Jaunes um, grassroots movement uh, protest in France, uh, which broke out in October of 2018 in in numerous French cities. Um, And it was triggered by um, the decision by President Macron to increase fuel prices. Um, So ostensibly this was to um, lower... Um, dependence on fossil fuels and encourage people to to invest in uh, renewable energy sources. So it was uh, in the name of, of climate change. But what this actually did was to disproportionately burden um, the working and middle classes. Mm. So it, it actually um, damaged and further impoverished people who are already under financial stress. Mm. Um, so this was a huge movement and it, it had lots of 
uh, members involved in it. Um, and I th it's very important to state that the, the protest movement made it clear that its actions weren't a backlash against the um, climate change aspects of the um, carbon tax, um, but it was just against the type of climate policy that mm. was put into place. Um, so they actually, the protesters advocated for a different type of what they called real ecological policy, uh, which was meant to focus on um, taxing fuel and kerosene for shipping companies mm. and airlines um, to increase uh, taxation on corporations and big mm. business and um, to tax uh, financial transactions and speculation which was another thing mm. that uh, Naomi Klein uh, pointed out um, so I think this is a crucial case study to demonstrate the wrong source of government led yeah. climate change policy well, uh, the type that um, impacts the people who are already uh, under stress, already impoverished, um, and which doesn't tie in with this idea that the the polluter ought to shoulder the the main cost. Yeah. Oh, I think that is actually a very fascinating example. I didn't know that they actually came up with an alternative ecological policy that would be more just. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it is the archetype of the boneheaded top-down governmental solution. Right. I, for one, am not completely opposed to top-down action. I think it will be increasingly necessary, especially in this tight 10-year window or even 9-year window now that the IPCC has laid out for us. But, you know, to put the blame on the working class, on the middle class, for having to live in the society mm -hmm. that governments make them live in, right? Yeah. We don't choose every day to burn fossil fuels. We, we have to do it because we live in society that is structured around it. It is not up to us per se to forge the sustainable path forwards. I mean, we can we, be, we can become plant-based, we can try to skip out on flying, but that will not move the needle in the right direction. It has to be a systemic policy. So to blame the working class and the middle class for having to live in this, in this society, in this carbon society is just, like really wrong it's unjust mm. and it, and it sh I'm, I'm glad this received backlash because it's just not right right and um some of the listeners might be thinking all right so uh, we were talking about the need for a carbon tax mm. um but then we see this pretty disastrous uh, example of a carbon tax actually being implemented by mm. government so is there a way around that well i think my answer to that would be that there needs to be some sort of redistributive mechanism mm. Um, yep. So um, poorer and middle class consumers have to be somehow compensated um, for the increased fuel and heating prices. Yes. Um, I mean, so I think there's a few different ways of doing this. I'm not completely an expert on it, but I think it could be introduced uh, through like a tax cut, for example, or through um, income credit. Um, but I think there, there necessarily needs to be some some form of redistribution of wealth in order to take the strain off these um, less wealthy people. Well, I think you're exactly right. And I think a carbon tax should not be devolved down to the working class and the middle class. Rather, it should have acute applications towards the big polluters. Mm -hmm. Like it should almost be a type of like corporate carbon tax rate so that the big institutional emitters like the fossil fuel industry have to pay money for mm -hmm. continuously emitting fossil fuels. So, and they cannot then, you know, say if 
you're the government, I'm the fossil fuel company, you say, okay, I need to pay a carbon tax. And then I shouldered that fiscal blame onto the consumer. That's not what should happen. No, so no. it needs to be the, the really big emitters who shoulder this blame. I will say also that one issue with the carbon tax is that it continuously entrenches this whole like fiscal market solution towards the climate mm-hmm. crisis. I mean, carbon tax and it's kind of like twin brother or sister cap and trade were very popular um, back in the day, back in like the last 10 years. There was even a cap and trade bill proposed Barack Obama in his first term called the, the Markey something bill. That actually never even passed and Klein talks about this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, cap and trade and, and carbon taxes, they're not really... Yeah. They're Whereas not in the European board. Union, it did pass. Mm. And it, it was somewhat of a failed experiment. Yeah, it it didn't um, achieve the sort of um, successes that it was expected it, to. It, it kind of is more the idea like, oh, to solve this issue, we need more markets. Like we need more fiscal instruments. Right. I'm not saying that there's the opposite direction possibly yeah. of the one we ought to be going, which is to reduce the types of markets that we've created. Yeah. Like for example, there there shouldn't be. A market on money. Money I mean, shouldn't be a commodity. I also think to be it, traded and um, exchanged and right. have a fluctuating value. I think it also provides people with a s- false sense of w- the situation we're in. We should not even be talking about carbon tax. We should be talking about carbon elimination. And carbon taxes are way too slow. Like you need to basically say we need we need to stop emitting carbon within like you know yeah. a couple. Like so a it's decade. not about disincentivizing the no. use of carbon. It's about moving away from it completely period and i mean carbon taxes may be able to provide some path forward but it is piecemeal rather than like at the core of what we need to do but i mean i think it has actually like it's interesting to see the shift like it was very in vogue like a decade ago but now it's kind of fallen by the wayside i think because people recognize that this crisis is not going to be solved by tinkering with the market Mm -hmm. and it's now much more about justice big government plans and yeah i I think you know the justice portion that you talked about earlier you can also extend that by talking about climate reparations from the global north to global south Mm -hmm. which i mean is not necessarily completely related to carbon tax but we need to make sure that the burden of the path forward to decarbonization does not fall on the people who had little to do with causing the crisis in the first place yeah um just going back to this idea of um, of forcing corporations to be legally obliged to pay for the pollution that they produce. Mm. I think it's interesting to draw parallels with an example of of where this has been done successfully in the recent past, yeah. and that is with tobacco companies. So actually, um, tobacco companies, due to a huge amount of um, public pressure and um, and a huge increase in evidence, uh, medical evidence, and scientific evidence of the ties between smoking and cancer have been forced, legally obliged, to shoulder the costs of some of the health implications oh, right. of smoking. Hmm. Um, so the, the corporations themselves have been forced to pay for the negative impacts of their consumers. Right. So right. I think uh, I think we could draw a parallel there with, right. um, with the fossil fuel industry where increasing evidence is emerging of the negative impacts um, that they are perpetuating. Yeah. And therefore, they ought to also be legally obliged yeah. to shoulder that um, that cost. Right. 
like smoking, as we all know, causes lung cancer. So hypothetically, the big tobacco companies would have to be responsible for paying for your treatments, just like the fossil fuel companies produce planetary warming emissions, which, as we all know, precipitate natural disasters. Exactly. They ought to be held responsible to clean up the mess that they've actually put on the shoulders of their of the average citizen mm. they, they do nothing to clean up the the mess of the uh, um the mess greenhouse of gases that they just submit into the, the atmosphere. atmosphere they've done nothing although nothing. if listeners tuned into the last episode i came up with mm. a or no i did not come up with this but i rather read about an interesting idea where we turn them into carbon sucking public entities where they literally quite literally have to suck out the carbon that they emitted mm-hmm. but nice yeah i like that poetic justice um thanks for sticking with us folks we'll give you another little musical interlude before uh, diving into the idea of the green philanthropist and green billionaires and why we ought to be suspicious of their good intentions why not thank you very much kendrick lamar for those beautiful um poetic words and how much does a dollar cost is it does it does it cost enough to save the planet well no the, the planet is priceless you're right you're right indeed we can't place a price on the planet we can't put a price on life itself there we go Beautiful. mic drop <laughs> thank uh, you for thanks for being uh, with us <laughs> also this is our announcement that kendrick lamar will be joining our show next week so just stay tuned we'll have a live musical interlude next week by <laughs> kendrick lamar in our kitchen um but no seriously moving on to this uh a question of the green billionaire we've got a few names um a few particular individuals to discuss uh i will be bringing up richard branson as as a particular case study yes and i will be focusing on jeff bezos the ceo of amazon as well as bill gates okay um so should i go for it with my uh, example of richard branson so Richard Branson is uh, the, for those of you who don't know, he's the flamboyant uh, founder of the Virgin Group. The Virgin Group has uh, an airline, it has a train line, it, it even um, went into uh, intergalactic uh, travel um, a little bit in recent times. So um, Richard Branson had a chat with Al Gore in 2006 when he um, found out about the climate crisis and he claimed to have had an epiphany during this conversation. And this epiphany led him to make a huge pledge of $3 billion, which he pledged to spend over the following decade um, towards the development of biofuels and alternative energy sources. Um, so yeah, he, he, lo- he combined this pledge with uh, the development of something called the Carbon War Room. and. Uh, <laughs> And that, that was meant to um, find ways and strategies to attack and defeat carbon, which was considered oh. to be the main enemy. Okay. Um, so all of this sounds quite promising. Um, so where does the problem come in? What, what's the issue with this? Well, actually, as the years went by, the pledge suddenly turned into more of a gesture. Uh, Branson, Branson's attempts to find a miracle fuel failed. Um, and meanwhile the virgin business boomed uh, and this is partially due to his positive public image um, people uh, due to the fact that he presented himself as this environmentally conscious uh, entrepreneur 
people were more willing to to buy um to buy seats on his flights because they could do so with mm. an eased conscience because because this is where it gets interesting the source of the money he wanted to invest of this three billion dollars that he wanted to invest into the development of biofuels was meant to be the actual money uh, the actual profits of virgin atlantic mm. which placed some of the initiative on the shoulders of um of his consumers mm. so in fact it, the cynical among us might see it as a ploy to um, make his company more popular among uh, environmentally conscientious uh, consumers um and in fact he didn't actually uh, invest his three billion he fell completely short of it uh, so by 2014 which was eight years into the 10-year the pledge branson had only spent about 230 million of the promised three billion on research into sustainable alternatives and biofuels most of which um, were unsuccessful um, and during this period um, he also spent more than 200 million on virgin galactic which was a sort of vanity project that he put together mm. predicated around space travel so during this <laughs> it sounds absurd but this this green savior this messiah of of um Sustainability. Of, of sustainability and of green philanthropy actually spent almost as much on the hugely carbon intensive um, project of space travel and space exploration as he did on um, the development of sustainable technologies wow which is extremely shocking well uh and so i mean just to give a few concluding right. thoughts on this um it just proves that however good the intentions of these rich individuals may be um, just the current capitalist model that they've already profited from and built their multi-million dollar empires around is just too tempting mm. for them to surrender completely they might um, invest part of that money into alternative um, solutions or into other projects but at the end of the day they won't abandon the type of model that has uh, benefited them so much for the majority of their careers yeah. and gotten them to this status in the first place so i think we'll see a few parallels between my example and noah's yes because there's very similar contradictions in the other um green philanthropists that he's going to talk us through yes that was very well said and richard branson is perhaps the classic textbook example of the pitfalls of a green messiah Bringing it back to my first example, I'm going to focus on Jeff Bezos. As we all know, Jeff Bezos is the CEO of Amazon. He's worth roughly $200 billion, an absurd amount. Um, and yes, he's perhaps the most famous billionaire alive right now. A year ago, or two years ago, he came up with something called the Earth Fund, for which he pledged $10 billion of his own money to fight the climate crisis. You know, since he made the announcement, there's been a lot of speculation. Where is he actually spending this money? We haven't heard much about different fund allocations, what type of initiatives he's supporting. More recently, it's been revealed that he's issued out the first amount of money from this $10 billion fund, this $10 billion pledge. So he gave $100 million to each of the four most established environmental groups, including the Nature Conservancy, the Environmental Defense Fund, and the Natural Resource Defense Council. So, 
these, as I said, are very well established environmental organizations that have an operating budget that is over nine figures. So they are institutional actors that have been around for a long time, which suggests considering the state of the climate crisis, they have largely been a failure. I mean, they have practiced conventional methods that have not moved the needle in any discernible, sustainable direction. As the author of this article who you know reported on this says, with a few exceptions, all of these four organizations evince a pollution-centric view of the climate problem, calling for technocratic solutions that slowly ramp down emissions. And this is the very key takeaway, is that Bezos is basically investing in the status quo, because of course he profits from the status quo. What is missing from his so-called Earth Pledge? What's missing is initiatives that tackle climate justice. What's missing is that anti-capitalist social justice movements that are focusing on taking down the corporation he represents and the billionaire friends that he could probably dines and wines with on the weekends. So mm. it shows that oftentimes these pledges, which look good on paper like, wow, $10 billion to fight the climate crisis, are, are extremely misleading because they are very much cosmetic changes to what has to be a structural change. Mm. And honestly, by giving this money, it only continuously delays the very real, urgent, systemic, deep cutting changes that need to take place right now. So it is cosmetic above all else. Um, yeah, so I think that's a really good example. And mm -hmm. if Bezos actually cared about tackling the climate crisis, he would try to ameliorate the consumer-driven profit model that, and you know, the immense corporation that is Amazon that profits off of the exploitation of working-class people and continuously, you know, propagates consumerism. If he actually cared about that, he would try to ameliorate his business model. Yeah, but but he won't because that'll affect his profit margins, and I think that's where it's um, just worth um, pointing out a fundamental difference between philanthropy and charity. So philanthropy actually, um, like charity, seeks the betterment of humanity, um, but at the same time, it seeks to to draw profit from it. Yeah. Oh. So it's not right. it's not just uh, a, a funneling of money towards a cause without expecting anything in return. Yeah. It's an investment. Yeah. And I think that's really important to stress. Yeah, absolutely. That there's a real difference between those two initiatives. And I know we're short on time here, but I'm going to quickly discuss Bill Gates. Recently, he wrote a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Um, you know, Bill Gates is by no means an environmentalist. In fact, his company, Microsoft, and the Bill Gates Foundation have donated money to politicians who are in the pocket of big oil. You know, an extreme example is that when... Biden was elected when he was president-elect, Microsoft, as well as other corporations, signed a letter urging him to be ambitious on the climate crisis. Meanwhile, Microsoft donated money to David Perdue, who was a Republican senator in Georgia against, of course, a Democratic adversary who have, you know, denies climate science, does not have any type of platform to address the climate emergency. Mm -hmm. So it shows this, like, two-faced play that's going on. Mm. Not to mention that during the writing of the book, you know, the winter previous to publication, Gates joined a bidding war for the ownership of the world's largest private jet servicing company, which, I mean, not to get into it, but that's just horrible publicity and just looks terrible. Mm. But, I mean, I think a larger issue is like, who is giving Gates the social license to talk about this? He's a tech billionaire. He has no real place. Right. And I think he, he's earned that. Um, 
I mean, he the way we value status in society is is wealth. So yeah. he's he sort of feels like he's earned that platform, and he's actually listened to uh, much more than than perhaps he ought to yeah. because of his limited um, um, expert knowledge Folks. on the topic. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. We're unfortunately out of time. I hope you join us next I mean, week. Again. We could carry on all night. We could carry on all night. We've got <laughs> lovely wine, but unfortunately our time is up. So thank you everyone and say the planet. Why, Why not? not? Why not?